Good morning. We are studying through a series we call What We Believe. And today we're going to be talking about perhaps the uh, most unfun of those topics, and that is the fall. Sin subjects creation to death. The fall. Sin subjects creation to death. My aim for us this morning is that we would together despise sin. That's my aim. That this morning together we would despise sin. So if you got a Bible, uh, go to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Side note, side note, so pause for a moment. I think it's important to note here that the enemy, as we looked at last week, the Lord has a name. His name is Yahweh. He's personal. And we looked at those characteristics and, and who he is. You notice the enemy does not refer to him by name, but just in general terms as God. Satan doesn't want to call him by his name, but just generally refer to him as a, as a deity, perhaps in his deception to make him appear more distant and more cold, rather than imminent and personal. And near who has a name and part of his deception is to misstate and misapply and misquote and then doesn't even refer to him personally. So the deception here is thick, right? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of Yahweh, God, walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh, God, among the trees of the garden. You notice Moses goes back to referring to him by name and personal Satan keeps him cold and distant in general. And Moses again is discipling his people to know the Lord. And he again refers to him by name. But Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice God is not inquiring because he needs 411. He's on the witness stand giving testimony. Adam is. 
God is not learning. He knows. And he's making Adam know. And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and thus you shall lead all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you and pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to Yahweh an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And Yahweh said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire, same word, same word for chapter 3, verse 16, speaking to Eve and her desire being contrary to her husband. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin is contrary. Sin is contrary. It's... Desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. My goal is that you would despise sin with me together. It's not what the serpent promised, is it? Sin over promises and under delivers every time. When our parents rebelled against the Lord, against His Word, sin started reigning in death. Not reign as in sovereign over all things like Yahweh reigns, but reign as in a curse that binds up. Make no mistake here, there's no dualism. Yahweh is not equal with the serpent. The serpent is not equal to Yahweh. There are not two equal and opposite forces. There is Yahweh, Jesus Christ, the triune God of the universe, and there is no other. And one of His creatures has rebelled. And through that rebellion, He has brought into that the image bearers. And sin and death now have begun to bind to all things as the curse of death. 
the Lord Yahweh was gracious, gracious. The Lord Jesus was gracious in that immediate physical death did not assault them in the moment. The Lord was gracious and stayed his hand. However, however, sin introduced the curse of death into absolutely everything. As you hear me say often, because of sin, we broke, the dirt broke, the air broke, the plants broke, the universe broke, all things broke. And judgment fell on all created order. Two big categories of sin that we have to observe here. The first one is omission. Omission, the sin of omitting. You notice as we read in Genesis 3, Adam, the omission is Adam not acting when he should. The enemy is having a conversation with his bride. And when she gives in, she takes of the tree and gives to Adam who was there with her. He saw, he heard, he did nothing. Omission. And then there's commission. The sin of committing. Eve acting when she shouldn't act. Two large categories of sin that introduce death. Omitting. Not acting when I should. Committing. Acting when I should not. So the result of sin is what we call in Christianity the fall. The fall. Or you might say it like this. The infection of all things with sin resulting in death. The infection of all things with sin resulting, culminating in death. Romans 3.23 For the payout, the wages of sin is death. Sin never pays out in life. Sin never pays out in life. The wages of sin is death. The reason I read for you Genesis 4, 1 to 8 is because the descent into sin and death is steep from Genesis 3 on. It's not a gradual slope. It is a steep descent. We go from the earth breaking and the air breaking, our hearts breaking, our relationships shattering to now active murder. Respect for authority is replaced by rebellion. I want you to listen to these contrasts. A clear conscience is replaced by guilt and shame. Chances are some of these are going to hit in your heart and you're going to feel them. And I want you to hate sin with me. Blessing is replaced by physical, spiritual, and even eternal punishment. Yahweh as friend walking in the garden with Jesus in the cool of the day. Face to face is replaced by Jesus now as my enemy to hide from. Trust is now replaced by terror. And I use that word intentionally because the Bible when it says fear does not mean terror. And we dealt with that last week. So trust is replaced by terror. Love is replaced by indifference and hatred. Intimacy with Yahweh is replaced by 
separation from Yahweh. Freedom to obey is replaced by slavery to sin. That's why it's so hard to obey. Because outside of Christ, you are a slave to sin. In Christ, sin still crouches at the door and has grips on your flesh. You know what that feels like. Freedom to obey. I I don't even have a framework for that. I, I do not have a framework for freedom to obey. I do not know what that's like. I know the words. I speak English. I wrote them. I'm saying them to you. I do not have a framework for understanding freedom to obey. It's replaced with slavery to sin. Honesty is replaced by lying and deceit. Self-sacrifice is replaced by self-centeredness. Peace. The Bible's word, shalom, which we're going to hit on in just a few minutes. A very important word and idea in restoration and salvation. Shalom, peace, is replaced by restlessness and chaos. You feel that in your own soul at times. Restlessness. We weren't made for restlessness and chaos. We were made for shalom, rhythm, right, things in order. So what are some biblical pictures of sin? What are some images that the Bible gives us for sin? And I've taken some of these, of just, just a few. I've taken some of these, lifted them out of the narrative of the story. Sometimes the Bible uses these words, and sometimes it doesn't use these words. These are words that are used to describe what the story is telling us. So I'm just going to lay them on you. I gave you a, the first one. I've got a scripture passage to go with it. If I put a scripture passage with everything, these notes would be 32 pages long. So I couldn't do that. So the first one, biblical picture of sin, rebellion. Rebellion. And the scripture that I put with that to help us see it is 1 Samuel 15, 23. Where Samuel is speaking to Saul when he says rebellion, because Saul has not obeyed. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. So Saul's action is described as rebellion. The Bible uses another picture and it, it's, it's the word presumption, presuming too much. David even writes in the Psalms, guard me from presumptuous sins. That is assuming too much on the Lord. Folly, foolishness, treason, death, hatred. Spiritual adultery, I said, because we have a, a room full of some smaller ears who I can't say the W word. But if you read the word Ezekiel, he uses it. If he uses it once, he uses it a hundred times to describe their sinful relationship and rebellion against him. So spiritual adultery. And the Bible's explicit. If you've read Ezekiel, you probably walked away going, hmm, God said that? Wow. So spiritual adultery, which when Jesus comes along and he says, 
He is Him. He's the groom and the church is the bride. And, and our relationship to Him is the very foundation. It's the spiritual picture He gave us, right? Us related to Him is the spiritual picture He gave us for physical marriage on this earth, right? And so therefore, this whole idea of spiritual adultery is being unfaithful to the Lord. We were made for Him and Him alone, right? And so spiritual adultery is inviting other things in that stand between us and Him, picture given to us in the text it's another picture is missing the mark as if you were an archer and you're shooting at a target and you miss miss the mark wandering from the path you're on a path you should be walking a path that goes somewhere but rather than staying on the path you get off the path and go your own way idolatry pride selfishness blindness deafness Hard heart, I will take out of you a heart of stone. This is the work of the new covenant. Jeremiah and Ezekiel looks forward to. I will take out of you a heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. Proverbs speaks about being stiff-necked. Just refusing to move. You've clenched your neck and you're bearing down and you're not going to turn. Stiff-necked. Delusion. And unreasonableness. These are biblical pictures of sin. So, let's break it down by testament. Oh good, we got 18 minutes. Awesome, we're doing alright. How, how does the Old Testament present sin? How does the Old Testament present it? I'm going to give you eight quick ways the Old Testament presents sin. We've got a lot of scripture here, okay? So, get your Bible ready. If you want to go to it quickly and look at it, some of them I'm going to read, some of them are not because they're more lengthy. How does the Old Testament present sin? Number one, the Old Testament by itself, just the Old Testament, presents it as a breaking of relationship. It's a breaking, a destroying of relationship. You see that in Genesis 3. The Lord walked with them, Yahweh, King Jesus, the creator of the universe, walked with them face to face, person to person, relating. And now... They run from him and hide. So sin is presented as a breaking of relationship. The second thing we see in the Old Testament is a breaking of social order. We add to that a breaking of created order. Shalom is broken. Shalom is a deeper word in the Bible than mere peace. Shalom is presented particularly in Isaiah and Joel. And when I post these notes for you, I've got all the references, well, not all, some of the references. You can go and look and read the passages. Shalom is presented in Isaiah and Joel as a restoration of the proper rhythm and order of things. It's things such as the lion will lay down when the kingdom is established and sin is done away with and order is put back in place, this word shalom, peace, is used to describe lion laying down with the lamb. Meat-eating creatures no longer eating meat because they're not killing them, they're eating grass. The heavens being set right. Beautiful things coming about. Old men dreaming dreams again and young men seeing vision. Male and female prophesying the word of the Lord. All the good things set back right. Sin broke all that. Sin brought chaos and disorder 
and restlessness to social and created order. So it's a breaking of order. Shalom has been robbed. And I would argue the human soul creating the image of Jesus is scraping and clawing for order. You know that in your own soul. When stuff's out of whack, you can't function, right? It's because we were made for shalom and sin broke it, destroyed it. But the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. Number three, we see that it's a breaking of covenant or the covenant. It's a breaking of God's deal with them. Jeremiah eleven ten says this, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. That's where it all started. Misusing God's word, misapplying God's word, not believing God's word, refusing to hear and obey. And they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. So sin is presented as a breaking of this covenantal relationship with God where we broke His stipulations. We worshipped other gods. We went after other things and we did not listen to what He said. Number four, it's presented as a violation of legal boundaries. We violated the law. Psalm 119, 126. It is time for the Lord to act for your law has been broken. So legal boundaries, right and wrong, set up by God, have been broken. Number five, sin is presented as a violation of holiness, thus leading to uncleanness, pollution, internal pollution, and pollution of created order, defilement, and spiritual adultery. So sin is presented as a violation of holiness. Isaiah 24, 5, The earth lies defiled, under its inhabitants. You go read the prophets and you will find this refrain over and over again. Not only is man broke, but the earth itself is groaning and in need of a Sabbath rest. Ezekiel chapter 35 and 36 and 37. I'm going to take you out of the land because my dirt hasn't had its Sabbath because of you. And so I'll remove you from it so the dirt can rest. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violating the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Number six, the Old Testament presents sin as a violation of God's honor, leading to shame and disgrace for the violators. We don't have a strong sense of honor and shame in a right-wrong culture like we are. We're a a law-based culture, and that's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. So we don't have an innate, I think, we, I think it's innate, I just don't think we know how to define it. Because when I say honor and shame, you kind of have a general sense of what honor is. You kind of have a sense of what shame is, but you kind of have a hard time putting a definition to it, right? You feel that a little bit? Unless you were raised in an honor-shame culture or spent a lot of time with Muslims, you kind of struggle with this idea of honor and shame. But the Bible presents for us that the violation, that sin is a violation of God's honor. And it leads to shame and disgrace on the violators, Violating honor means to do things that make the name of another look bad. 
God is ultimately honorable. He's ultimately right. And to disbelieve and disobey His Word makes Him look like something He's not. That's dishonoring God. Genesis 2.25. You see how this works out. Not in God being ultimately dishonored, but in the violation of man and woman in that they experience disgrace and shame. God hadn't sinned, so He doesn't feel shame. They dishonored Him and they felt the disgrace and the shame. Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And how do we know they were ashamed? Genesis 3.10, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So violating God's honor, resulting in shame and disgrace for the violators. That's how sin is presented. Number seven, sin is presented as an accumulation of sin through history. This one is shocking. Sin's not a one and done. Sin is never one and done. Sin is never one and done. Sin is never one and done. Hear that. Sin is never one and done. Sin college basketball. Sin is not like college basketball. Do one year, go to the NBA. Sin does one year and it accumulates to two, it accumulates to three, it accumulates to four, it accumulates to five, it goes past its NCAA eligible years, and it keeps moving and keeps moving and keeps moving. Sin accumulates historically. Genesis fifteen sixty, when God is making His covenant with Abraham, He lets Abraham know what's coming. And He tells him, Some bad news. Your descendants are going to be enslaved by another people for 400 years. And his reason? Genesis 15, 16. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Historically, God is being patient with the Amorites and their sin is collecting and their sin is collecting. But there is a birth date of the fullness of their sin at which he will no longer let it stay. Sin accumulates. Romans 2, 5 gets super explicit here. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Sin accumulates. There is no one and done with sin. You hate sin? You ought to be feeling this. This isn't good. Sin is no bueno. There's nothing about sin that is good. Yet it is so easy to deceive us. The final observation that I have for you, it's not the only, but it's the final one I have for you that we see in the Old Testament. The presentation of sin is sin is presented as death. Genesis 5, the whole chapter, it's a genealogy. And it's common refrain. And you guys have been here long enough, we've been studying through the book of Genesis. The common refrain in Genesis 5 is, And he died. And he died. And he died. Because sin only pays out in death. What does the New Testament do to present us with sin? I've only got four of these and they're very quick. How does the New Testament present sin? The first one, I transliterated these for you. It does no good to give you Greek words uh, because they're all translated as sin. 
but they have nuances to them. The first one is hamartia. It means to miss the mark. It's contrary to law. It's wrongdoing. The New Testament also secondly presents sin as uh, this word paraptome, which means a false step to trespass. It's to step in the wrong direction. It's to misstep. The third one is parabasis, which means intent to disobey. This was I disobeyed purposefully, did it on purpose, malicious intent. Asabeus means to live contrary to God or godlessness. Nothing good with sin, right? Sin pays out death. So what are we going to take away from this beautifully happy sermon this morning, right? I'm sure you're all feeling joyous and lifted up right now, right? That's not my aim. My aim is for you to hate sin. To hate sin. Sometimes I think there's this false concept that the, the Bible teacher's job is to make everybody feel good. And sometimes the Bible doesn't leave us feeling good. and It's not supposed to. Because if sin left us feeling good, then its wages might not be death. Right? Right? And, and the Bible tells us that the payout for sin is death and it never, ever works out for us. So the aim is not that you like, wow, I just feel so light and airy today. I think I'll go for a hike. It's, I want you to hate sin because, listen, until you hate it, you won't fight it. Until you hate it, you'll continue to give in to it. Until you hate it, you won't love righteousness. Until you hate it, you won't learn to taste and believe that righteousness really tastes better. I want you to hate it. Because sin is a limiting factor on all things. Sin limits everything. Sin introduces spiritual conflict that levels the likes of which you can't imagine. Sin is an open door for spiritual conflict. Willful, blatant disregard for God opens the door to demonic activity. Sin is never presented in the Bible as working out for us. And until we learn to hate it, we may try to put an arm around it, pat it on the back like a friend, or maybe even put a Christian t-shirt on it and call it Christian. We need to learn to identify and hate sin. And if you think that language is too harsh for you, you need to understand God hates sin. God hates. Go read the Psalms carefully. Hatred for is not an anti-God quality. It's a Godward quality. The question isn't, does God hate? Yes, He does. The question is, what does He hate? And He hates sin. And we are, as well, to hate sin. So what are our takeaways? Well, they go along with what we read in the Old Testament. Number one, we need to take away and recognize sin has infected all people. There's nobody ever been conceived that's not affected by sin. Romans 5, 12 to 19. I just highlighted the bad parts because this one's on sin. We're going to get to how Jesus solves it next week. So you're going to have to hang tight. Romans 5, 12 to 19. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. There's no such thing as an innocent human being from conception to grave. All are guilty of Adam's sin. All. All guilty. In verse 15, For if many died through the one man's trespass, many died through Adam's trespass. See, I've always imagined if Adam just could have gotten out, if Eve could have just gotten out of their tunnel vision, of thinking about what they thought they didn't have and thought about Abel and thought about cancer and thought about abuse and neglect and poverty, maybe the decision would have been different. Because many died through that trespass. Many have passed because of the curse of sin. Many died through the trespass. Sin has affected everyone. Verse 16, For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. So all people, apart from Christ, because of Adam's sin, from conception to grave, stand under the condemnation of God. Verse 17, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And we are all sons and daughters of Adam. Therefore, death reigns over us. Hey, little reality check. Unless the Lord comes for you pass, you are going to die. Verse 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Jeez, man. Sin's affected all people. Number two, sin destroys relationships. None of us have to look outside this room to recognize that. Self-centeredness, rebellion against God, disobeying His word, wrecks interhuman relationships. And there's likely someone in the room that you have wrecked a relationship with in the past and by God's grace it has been restored. Sin wrecks relationships. The shalom is destroyed. The rhythm, the peace is destroyed. We miscommunicate. We have ill intent. Sometimes it's not ill intent. Sometimes it's just I'm dumb and I do stupid things and I don't consider other people and it wrecks relationships. Sometimes people don't consider me. And it's all about them and it wrecks me. Sin wrecks relationships. Number three, sin breaks the good vibes of all created order. I had to change up my language. Shalom sometimes just doesn't quite translate in our, we just think mere peace, not thinking a little deeper about it. Sin wrecks all the good vibes of created order. Shalom is intercepted by sin. You don't have to go very far to see this. Weather patterns broke. Thank God for yesterday. It's October and we're still playing football in 90 degree heat. That's a sin. Not football, but the heat and playing in it is a sin, right? Like sin breaks order. Sin breaks the good vibes of created order. Shalom has been intercepted. I, I'm just going to throw this out there for you guys. I got a hunter in my family. I grew up hunting. And and uh, and I, as, as the older I get, the more sensitive I get to life. And I can't describe that. I don't know why that is. I'm trusting that's just that's hopefully I'm hoping that sanctification, and not just getting old and soft. 
But I was coming from the trash yesterday morning and a box turtle was crossing the road. And you know what I did? I stopped in the middle of the road, got out and moved the turtle. I told anybody run over the turtle. I don't want to kill anything anymore. And, I'm, and I used to say, if you ain't going to kill it, don't eat meat. Be off and I'm like, oh God, does that mean I'm going to have to be a vegetarian now? No, please God, don't rescue me from that sin, please. Oh, I'm just kidding. I don't think it's a sin. I'm just, just joking. But sin wrecks relationships between humans and created order. And just, there's coming a day, meat eaters, where we're not going to eat meat anymore. The lion's going to lay down with the lamb. And killing will cease. It's going to stop. Killing is out of order. It's a breaking of shalom. You can read Genesis and, and the allowing of eating meat didn't happen until later. There's coming a day where even death, all of death, not just death, spiritual death, but physical death, all of it's going away. And the child, Isaiah says, will play with the adder at the adder's hole. That's a serpent, a snake. That's going to have to be miraculous because I see snake, I run. Don't care, poisonous or not. I ain't going to kill it, but I'm running from it, right? And so there's a day where children, that fear that has been created between creature and even human will be gone. Isn't that awesome? But right now, that's not the case because the good vibes in created order have been obliterated. And the spilling of blood is, is even a human necessity for life. I want you to hate sin. I want you to hate it. I want you to long for its removal. Number four, sin breaks covenant. Covenant biblically is between Yahweh and man and then between man and man that comes with stipulations and blessings and consequences. And the breaking of the covenant means somebody has let down their end and it's never the Lord. He never lets down his end of the covenant. It's always us. And then the consequences get heaped on us because sin only pays out in death. Sin breaks covenant. And so we break covenant. It's easy to break covenant. It's just a contract. Don't matter. Right? I just gave my word. Doesn't matter. Number five, sin pollutes the soul. It defiles the soul. It leaves a foul stench in the soul. Nobody sitting in this room can testify to having rebelled against the Lord and it just feeling glorious and flowery. Can you? Because it doesn't. It's, it's one of those words. It is, it is defilement. It is a violation of holiness. And it leaves us feeling dirty on the inside because sin only pays out in Six, almost done, clock's off. Sin dishonors the Lord and it dishonors other image bearers by how it exalts the self committing the sin and dishonors and puts down the image bearing object or created object being sinned against. Sin always lifts up the violator and puts down the violated. Sin never lifts up the violated. Sin always exalts self over the Lord and exalts the sinner to the place of worship and seeks to cast the Lord aside. Where'd Moses go, Aaron? 
We don't even know where this cat's at. Make gods for us. Okay, bring me your gold. Calf. Boom. Sin never exalts the Lord. It never exalts those violated. It always puts down. And finally, sin accumulates. It's historical. Don't believe. Listen to me. Don't believe that because judgment didn't happen when you sinned, that it won't come. As I said in that passage, I didn't say it. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 verse 5 that they're storing up wrath because of the hardened and penitent heart for the day of God's righteous judgment when it is revealed. Sinner, outside of Christ, don't think because God hadn't gotten you that there is no record. In the world of theology, he calls it the passive rebel or the passive judgment of God. Is God let that slide, but payday is coming. We have this picture of God's active wrath, and you do this, and we talk about getting struck by lightning. You ever been around people and you're joking around? He's like, "Man, God's gonna get me. He's gonna strike me with lightning. I better get in the house, right?" You know, we say that crazy stuff, and we mean God's gonna get me for that. God doesn't always get you with the active lightning strike. It's He lets you go and He lets it store up. Sin accumulates. So don't believe that because you don't feel consequences now that they aren't coming. I want you to hate sin. My aim is that you will hate sin and you'll think sin tastes bad. So how in the world are we going to end this most depressing sermon? One, next week we get Romans 3, 21 to 26. Okay, God hasn't left sin to reign. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to slightly only take the hook out of your mouth a little bit because I don't want to leave you depressed. But I'm going to leave the hook in. You need to feel the weight of sin. Sin never works out for your good. Feel it. Hate it. I want you to hate it. I want you to run from it. Run to righteousness. But the good news is that in Christ, sin is defeated. That those who repent... And believe the good news of the kingdom and the rule and salvation of Jesus Christ. God is gracious to take out a cold dead heart. And put in a new live heart. And put his spirit in you. And take away the consequence and the result of sin. So that all you will ever get is love in spite of your sin. And Jesus will take your punishment in your place. So that he gets God's wrath on Himself for you. He took it on Himself. So that if you repent and believe, all of your sin debt is passed to Jesus and all of His righteousness is passed to you. Now how God works that out, we're going to see next week. But I don't want to fully deliver you in all the details. I want you to feel the pain and the weight of sin because sin pays out death and death only. And the way to escape that is repentance and faith in Jesus. And if you do that, there's a glorious, glorious promise of sin having been crushed and done away with. But in the meantime, now, there are two things we need to do. And they're going to feel contrary, all right? And this isn't, this, this isn't Easy Church 101. This is real Christianity 101, okay? Here you go. Two things need to happen. Number one, we ought to mourn our sin. We got to mourn sin. If you don't hate sin, you're going to keep loving sin, putting Christian t-shirts on it and making it your buddy. You're going to learn to hate sin. So I want you to mourn sin. And there may be 
may be some repentance that needs to happen this morning actively. Maybe the Holy Spirit and His active ministry is bringing to your soul right now remembrance of those things. And it might look like it's against somebody and you need to confess. And you know what? There's going to be time for that. It's when we stand and sing. And if the Lord's speaking to you, you go find that person. You speak and y'all pray together and and, and make things right in Christ. Particularly if you're the violator. If you're the violated, you, you wait. You did nothing wrong. But if you are the propagator, you make sure you repent, right? Does that make sense? I don't know if that's the case. I'm just saying if it is, make sure you hate sin and repent of sin. And maybe the repentance of sin looks like praying with somebody and asking somebody to hear you say, I did wrong. The Bible teaches us to confess our sin one to another, right? We don't make room for that much in our lives because we're so private, we're so individual. God forbid somebody think I'm actually a sinner. Hey, we're all in that boat. And it might just be Holy Spirit's going, you know, you need to go tell this person what you did and let them pray with you and speak over you the good news of Jesus Christ and what He's done in your place for your sin. So you might need to do that. So I want you to mourn sin and repent of sin. And then the second thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to sing and celebrate what the blood of Christ has done to rescue us from sin. I know those two two things feel contrary, but welcome to the Christian life. It is living in a constant tension between truth and truth and the truth of God's word and those emotive things that almost stand opposed to one another. Mourning and celebration, they go together. Read the Psalms. The problem isn't the Lord or the worship service, it's us. Because sin has deceived us into thinking it ought to be all airy or it ought to be all down. Not that I can mourn and celebrate at the same time. Yes, you can. You can. I've buried parents and I've been able to mourn and celebrate in the same service. It's possible. And you can mourn your sin and celebrate that Jesus has rescued from it, rescued you from it at the same time. Which is why I want you to mourn your sin, repent of sin, and sing and celebrate Jesus' grace to you. That's a heavy and tall order, and I know it. And I almost didn't preach this sermon because I was like, you know what, people are going to be depressed. And they're going, it's like, you know what? Suck it up, buttercup. I want you to hate sin and I want you to love the cross and forgiveness and salvation in Christ. And we can celebrate both of those together. Okay? I'm going to pray and then we're going to practice. All right? Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that Holy Spirit would make His Word effective. I want to ask you to help that be of effect by helping us hate sin. And two... Help us to mourn that sin. And three, help us to celebrate. Lord, you, without a doubt, you're capable. There is no doubt that you can pull that off. So I ask you to do that. Lord, I ask that you not let the enemy hold sway in our thinking, nor tempt us in any way like our parents, to not regard your word and not regard the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he is speaking to us right now. Holy Spirit, I pray for supernatural discernment to know truth from error, right from wrong, good from evil. And Lord, don't let the enemy hold sway in anything we say and do this morning. Conquer by your power.
by your word, by your spirit, and cause us to hate sin and love righteousness and celebrate Jesus Christ and this good news that has rescued us from sin. Would you pull that off this morning? Tall order, but you're able. We pray in Jesus' name.